Good morning and welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your host, Brad Furlan, back on Tuesday for a bonus day for me, so I'm really excited about that. Have some great guests this morning. I'll be starting with Greg Ranallo, who is the uh, owner of Teachers Tree Service. And this is a business and a person who knows everything about trees and more. So we're going to, we're going to jump around to a whole lot of things that are of interest to uh, the Vermont landscape and uh, tending to trees and plants and everything. So that'll be fun. And then at 10 o'clock, Paula Munier is joining me. She is the senior agent and director of storytelling for Talcott Notch Literary and USA Today bestseller, author of Mercy Car Mysteries. And uh, so she's one of these people who can look at one sentence of a the beginning of a book and tell you if you're going to be a bestseller or if it turns into a paper airplane and flies into the wastebasket. Uh, so if you're a writer and want to want to tune into that, uh, join us at 10. Uh, the weekend uh, was good. No snow in St. Albans. And uh, yesterday I mentioned that driving here, the there was like a rainbow or a snowbow around Richmond. It was the most beautiful thing I've seen. I think some of the snow making at Cochran's was sending up this mist that created the perfect light situation. And uh, it was quite remarkable. This morning, same old routine, out to the barn, throw hay to the sheep, fill up their water, let the dogs out, uh, all the stuff that's daily kind of farm life, but I love it because it's like my gym and uh, gets gets my old achy bones moving. So now I want to welcome to the show Greg Ranallo, Teacher's Tree Service. Welcome. Thank you. So... Uh, we met recently, uh, tell the listeners, you were doing a project at uh, uh, Kilcare State Park and specifically for a, a, a problem with trees, right? Yeah, we're, we have several contracts with the state this winter removing ash trees in the park. And uh, the main purpose for that is the emerald ash borer is soon going to kill all the trees in the park. And after the borer kills a tree, a secondary fungus moves in and makes them uh, fall apart pretty quickly, quicker than any other tree problem that we've had in Vermont. And so it becomes a safety hazard. And if you wait until the trees decay to that point, it becomes a safety hazard for us to remove them. So uh, it's kind of a prophylactic removal contract in, uh, and between – uh, Kill Care, just the three contracts we have this year, Kill Care, Sandbar, and North Hero State Park, we're probably cutting down about 2,000 ash trees. Amazing, yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll get a little bit more into the emerald ash borer as we go, but I would like to kind of uh, jump back in history. Uh, how you became a tree man, and off air you were telling me that it's in your roots, so to speak. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd, I started in the tree business when I was 19, and when I was like 35, uh, some of my cousins were doing some genetic research and found out that my great-grandfather moved to Wisconsin to be a logger, and my grandfather was a tree topper in the Pacific Northwest. 
And uh, so I thought it was my unique choice, but it turned out to be genetic. And when you say treetopper, was, was that a pine of some sort or an evergreen? Or what, uh, what would he have been doing, do you think? Yeah, in the Pacific Northwest, my guess it would be uh, cedar and dug fir. And so the trees are giant and the logs are really valuable, so they would climb up you know, two-thirds up the tree and cut the top out and then drop the log so it didn't break when you drop the whole tree. That was a rugged job. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy job because the trees are giant. Uh, so um, roots back to your grandfather, but then you were in Minnesota, right, as, yeah. a, as a kid? and Yeah, I got a job uh, for a couple summers dragging brush for a diseased elm removal company. So we just cut down dead elm trees for a couple of summers, and uh, so I would—I didn't even get to use a chainsaw. I would just drag brush all day, and uh, I kept seeing the climber up in the tree having way more fun and making more money than me. So uh, I taught myself how to climb, and I—I I actually found my grandfather's old telephone pole climbing equipment in the garage, and. It was all leather, and it was so uh, old that it you couldn't even adjust it anymore. But I started climbing trees with that and putting the limbs in my old pickup truck. And, uh, and then I got hired by a company and learned from other climbers and got hired by another company. And so then I and then I started my own company in Minnesota. So it just snowballed from there. Were you a parent nightmare, or <laughs> did yeah. they even know? <laughs> yeah, my, for some reason, my mom was pretty chill. You know, when she called me for dinner, she when I was a kid, she usually had to look up to find out where I was because I spent my youth in the top of trees. But uh, yeah, my mom. I, I was briefly for one winter. I was a logger in Alaska. And my mom called me up in Alaska, and she said, I'm just reading an article on the most dangerous jobs in the country. And I was also a commercial fisherman, and, and uh, she said, yeah, commercial fishing's number one. I said, oh, I checked that off the list. And she said, uh, logging is number two. I got I got that. And she said, tree climbing's number three. <laughs> <laughs> and while I'm here, Mom, I'm, I'm going to be doing a little fishing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she, she actually thought that was funny, so she wasn't well worried. That's a good mom to have. Yeah. Uh, so in Minnesota, um, the landscape of, of the trees and forests, is it are there similarities to Vermont or was it different? Uh, I'd say it's very similar. You know, like the invasive species that we problems that we have in Minnesota are similar. Uh, we did a lot of elm removals and uh, elm treatment. I would say the difference in like a Minneapolis suburban area is they have a lot more resources and uh, yep. get rid of that. The, uh, <laughs> they have a lot more resources and I'd say they're more uh, you know Vermont kind of has a logging or a more passive attitude towards tree care where Minnesota's lot more sophisticated with three and a half million people in a city. So uh, they, they have much bigger budgets and spend a lot more money on their trees. I see. Like in, in their state forest, you mean? Uh, not so much in the state forest, but uh, for instance, um, in the suburbs, every suburb of Minneapolis has multi-million dollar budgets just to deal with ash trees. 
Okay. And I'd say that, and they also, if, uh, let's say someone has a huge ash tree on their property and they can't afford to hire us to come and cut it down, but it's going to fall down, they're in a tough situation. So in Minnesota, the suburb will condemn the tree, cut it down, and then put it on their property taxes over a period of years so they don't get their house crushed or their neighbor's house crushed or something yeah. like that. And that, so they kind of, and if there's elderly on a fixed income, you know, they, every ash tree that's going to fall on something important has to be dealt with. It either has to be injected to protect it from the bore or it has to be cut down. Okay. They can't be left. Is there a political awareness here in Vermont about that? Or is, is this something that's evolving? Uh, uh it's evolving. I would say that the political awareness is pretty low. And like even in, in Burlington, you know, the, the, what happens is the, the bores build up and it becomes a critical mass. And, um, and then all of a sudden all the trees die at once. So okay. like in the last five years on the islands, uh, we went from no dead ash trees to tens of thousands. Wow. In the last five years because the boar reached a critical mass. And um, one of my favorite examples, I won't name the name of the business, but it's a hotel. And I stopped and I said, you need to inject the ash trees in your parking lot or they're all going to die. And legally, they have to replace them all, which costs. We can inject them for over 20 years for the same cost as cutting down and replacing one tree. And... uh you know, and I'm sure in that hotel chain, the decision makers, you know, on planet Mars or something. And uh, so they said, thanks for the information. They didn't do anything. Now all the ash trees in their parking lot are dead. So I stopped in again and they remembered me from a couple of years before. And they said, oh, it's you again. And I said, yeah. And remember when I said all your ash trees were going to be dead? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, they're all dead. And I said, now you have to cut them down or they're going to fall on your customers. And they said, oh, I hope not. And then they still haven't died. Well, fate fate will find them. Yeah. I I hope not. But uh, so I, I, I was born and grew up in Burlington, you know, or at least I was a kid there. And I remember the streets were all lined with elm and then the uh, elm disease hit and they cut down all the trees back then. What became the new iteration of, of trees in, in these in in uh, Minnesota and in, in Vermont? Uh, I think that uh, Dutch elm disease taught city foresters that diversity is important because they had monocultures of elm trees because they were giant and beautiful and created this incredible archways over streets and and they had a long life low maintenance but dutch elm disease another invasive species species or disease came in and and uh killed um tens of thousands you know millions of elm trees and so they were the streets went from elms to nothing. So generally now with ash also there's some streets in the Burlington area that there's a lot, they're all ash trees. So they're really trying to plant a variety of trees now. Um, the elm tree is an interesting example because uh, the loss rate from Dutch elm disease was about 5% of elms a year. 
And so the elms have continued to regenerate, and there's still thousands of elm trees in Vermont. They just uh, don't become attractive to the beetle, the elm bark beetle, until they're about 30 years old. And so they've evolved to reproduce at a younger age. And then they, you know, die when they're 30 or 40 years old instead of 150. Um, and so there's a lot of elm trees around, and there's still some giant elm trees around um, because of that low loss rate. But uh, with emerald ash borer, it, it kills 100% of the ash in a short period of time. So there is no, there's very little regeneration, and the and the emerald ash borer will feed on the young ash trees as well as the old ones. So uh, the emerald ash borer infestation is about 20 years old, and it's killed virtually 100% of the ash trees everywhere it's been. Amazing. I, I want to revisit this sort of um, political arena because you're talking about something that is – you know, we're, we're, the whole environment and, and trees are, are, you know, so critical. And I, I read in your literature that, you know, you plant enough trees and, and you take care of enough trees to sort of be carbon neutral in your business. Um, is, is there, uh, is there an urging to get more, uh, sort of, attention to this whole tree cutting and uh, the the problems that go with it in Vermont? Uh, well, that's a couple questions there, but we're not foresters, so that's not okay. part of our expertise. We're arborists. So the distinction for me is like the difference between a veterinarian and a farmer. You know, so we don't view trees as products. And, you know, we all need farmers and we all need veterinarians. And so, uh, you know, if you want your cow healthy, you see a veterinarian. If you want it in the freezer, you, you know, it's a different yeah. route. So, um, uh, but I do think uh, trees are going to play an important role in climate change. And uh, there's a little video on my website, teacherstreeservice.com, where I took the temperature underneath a mature ash tree in South Burlington on a 90-degree day uh, and then next to it near a, you know, for the sake of illustration, a newly planted tree where an ash tree was removed. And the difference in temperature on the sidewalk was 30 degrees, and so which was far more dramatic than I thought it was going to be when I started out to make the video. Mm. You know, I thought it would be 10 degrees or something like that, but... So when, you know, when people cut down trees near their house, if they lose an ash tree, that can be a dramatic difference for air conditioning costs, which can increase um, their carbon footprint. So trees do a lot of different, as well as store carbon. They can save energy. They can keep the roads cooler, you know, and that's why it's always so sad when an invasive insect moves into Vermont and kills an entire species of tree that is going to take a long time to replace. So tell us a little bit more about injection, what that means uh, for preventative. Yeah, the, the for a tree, I would say uh, injecting an ash tree is almost 100% successful. So it's they're pretty easy. They're, it's relatively... 
it's not cheap, but it's not expensive. Uh, an injection can last two to three years. Uh, so you can do it every two years. Uh, if you're doing a lot of trees like a municipality, they could do it every three years. Um, and so it's an easy and it doesn't create a mess. You don't have to replant a new tree. So it's a pretty good way to, uh, preserve important ash trees. It's not practical for a forest situation because every tree has to be uh, injected. There's no blanket way to deal with it. So um, injection is a great alternative to removal in urban settings or your yard or any place where there's an uh, important ash tree. And uh and one thing we do as a company is I have favorite ash trees that that the people didn't want to inject, and so I just inject them anyway. And save them. <laughs> and save them, because I personally want to see the ash tree there. You've so. got the Johnny Appleseed sort of uh, heart, I guess. Uh, so what – you're the doctor, really, here, and you go in, and is it one injection in a tree, and then what happens, or, or is it more? It's kind of fun to watch. We set up like an IV all around the tree, so it's one injection site for every two diameter inches. Uh, so a 20-inch tree would be 10 holes. Okay. We set up like an IV all around the tree. We pressurize it, and the tree absorbs the chemical, which is a pretty small volume. It's only like 100 milliliters. Yep. Uh, we've got some calls now. Uh, I'm going to go to the phone line, start with Forbes from Corinth. I want to welcome you to the show, Forbes. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you. Interesting. Uh, if he is uh, still climbing, he's... Uh, the last of a breed, that's for sure. Uh, we've moved into mechanical harvesting and, and uh, equipment for most tree work today, but uh, still, if he can uh, build up and, and uh, put his spurs on and still climb, my uh, hat's off to him. I, I did it for about 20 years. Cut my teeth on uh, working with a fellow in Bowdoin, Maine, working on the Bowdoin Pines, 110-footers. And they did a lot of maintenance there. It's uh, quite an art. It really is. What's his experience with the uh, Chinese uh, elm replacement for a lot of our elms that we've lost? Uh, has he had much experience with that? Well, well, we'll find out, Forbes. Thank you very much for the call. Uh, I think, well, there's disease-resistant elms that are American elms, and then there's also Chinese elm, which is a bit of a different tree with the same shape. But uh, the Chinese elm trees are pretty hardy, but they're not as nice, and they're pretty messy. So for a lot of people, that's not a good alternative. Uh, I think the disease-resistant elms are probably a better uh, alternative, but I found I'm a little bit suspicious because they aren't attractive to the beetle until they're 30 years old. So if the disease-resistant elm actually isn't disease-resistant, you know, you can plant it, and when it gets to be 30 years old, it can die of Dutch elm disease. So, and I have cut down quite a few uh, disease-resistant trees that are have Dutch elm disease, um, and there's quite a few that don't. So. Uh, the jury's still out, and um, so the Chinese elm isn't really a popular tree to plant, but it it could be useful. 
so thanks for that call, Forbes, and uh, interesting about your uh, your career in uh, trees. We learn something here every day, and uh, you've been a good listener, and we appreciate you. We're talking with Greg Ranallo, who is the uh, owner of Teachers Tree Service. Uh, we've got a whole lot of um, things to cover. Uh, we're going to be taking a break shortly. Uh, I do have Ted on the on the line. I'll get back to you, Ted, right after our break. Uh, so hang on if you can. We look forward to talking with you. Um, Greg's been doing this for uh, the the teacher's tree service for the last 21 years or so, right? And then you had done a lot in Minnesota before that. Yeah, I've been climbing trees, and I still climb on occasion. Not very often. I'm mainly running the company, but um, for 42 years. 42 years. Uh, listeners, he doesn't have any casts on or big noticeable bruises, and uh, so... Uh, he, I guess he's doing it safely. And uh, thank you for holding on, Ted, from Shelburne, and I want to welcome you to the show. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, well, there are so many tree stories, but uh, the, the question is, well, and one is just exactly what is the teachers.com <laughs> website. Oh, what is your... It's teacherstreeservice.com. Okay, perfectly logical. That's what I'd written down. <clears throat> um, I had to retire. I, I live in a sort of a, oh, it's an old development of the 70s for the old man gig kind of. Well, one quick anecdote, but I got into the southeast corner of Charlotte in the mid-60s, and one, what had been a pastured stony section, it wasn't the hay part of the field, but it was just sprouting with, little ash saplings which I used for various purposes but that was then um, but I had to retire a couple of large maple trees on my third of an acre lot <clears throat> here with cluttered up with a house and some gardens um, and I'm wondering about replacements also I so admired I guess Cirque du Soleil came to mind as a as a tree climbing guy took apart a big maple tree close to my house and a neighbor's white plastic fence, <laughs> <laughs> dropping yeah. the pieces carefully. Oh, yeah. So you're wondering about what to replace the maple? I was wondering what. I mean, there's a, yeah, I guess I won't, yeah, I've heard of some that I'm not that attracted to. Oh, also, I've seen around the Charlotte town hall. It looks like they must have been planned and planted. It might be an oak relative or something. Not a great big tree, and I don't know its name or what it's expected to be or anything about it, but I'm interested in some you know, getting some shade, not not a maple again, probably, uh, just something to put in a adequate space. I mean, as I say, there were two in different parts of the yard that were very large maples so there is some remaining space with the departure of those two maples yeah do you know if they were sugar maples or red maples? i think so yes okay yeah that uh that indicates uh kind of well-drained uh healthy soil so your choices I think that's true yeah that's yeah so you're, know. you know as opposed to where ash trees grow is generally like the charlotte clay pan which is 
Yeah. Which really limits your choices of trees. So. Right. No, this is strictly a, a separate location. Uh, you know, it's it's actually across the street, plus a little bit from the Shelburne Museum. Oh yeah. Um, <clears throat> the the choices. There's a lot of different choices in that situation, and it's good to maybe have an arborist out and look to see what habit or what shape you want the tree to be in the long run, and then how much how fast you want it to grow. And how much room are, there is for the roots, et cetera. So, you know, an overlooked tree that I'll just throw out there is a hackberry that people don't plant. It's considered a native tree, and they, the berries have uh, feed the birds, and they're kind of interesting, and they're low maintenance. And right now, there's no Asian bugs killing them. So, um, so that's one choice. Maples are a pretty safe choice. In that situation, and there's a lot of different kinds of maples, and red maples will grow well as will grow a little bit more quickly. And then, you know, an oak is also a nice choice. I love oak trees, and they, of course, have acorns to feed the animals. Um, but it's good to kind of stick to native Vermont species. And uh, Ted can reach you uh, through your website. Is that how people find you the yeah, best? The, the most, the best way to keep your contact information organized is to go to the website and fill out a contact form, and that will get sorted by the office to go to the right arborist, and they'll set up an appointment to look at your house. Well, speaking of arborists, uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't get a little explanation of what's an arborist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and well, there the the ISA, the International Society of Arboriculture, has a certification program. So I think in our company we have about six certified arborists and uh, several kind of ready to take their test. You have to have at least three years of experience in the tree care business and then uh or some experience plus a degree i have quite a few degreed people in my company and uh and you take a test and then you're a certified arborist so i'm a certified arborist and um quite a few people in my company are also so it's it's arboriculture is different than a forester it's more about trees in the urban landscape and more than that, obviously, to be an arborist, your skill sets, can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, now, uh, I would say it's, uh, you know, we're a tree care company, so it's about tree preservation. So there's all kinds of things uh, with regards to that, like how to make a proper cut, um, knowing what tree is what and what their habits are and should be. Um, identifying tree diseases, you know, that could be uh, something we call abiotic. So it could be uh, compacted soil from construction or it could be a fungus or an insect um, or it could be the wrong tree in the wrong place. Um, so that's the what I think of as a boriculture is all those yeah. different things. Very interesting. Uh, when I was in Boy Scouts, we had some passed some test about uh, trees, and we had to identify ten trees in in the forest. And of course, you know, we always think about oak and maple and ash and beech and birch and the evergreens, white pine. I always knew because it had five needles. It was a white pine in a clump. Right. Uh, so. 
what you mentioned hackberry, which I've never heard of. Um, you know, what are some of the trees that were are not so obvious to us that are everywhere? Oh, uh, there's a lot of a lot of times people are surprised when I say cherry, but choke cherry trees can be quite large, and uh, so there's a lot of cherry trees in Vermont. There's a, quite a few different birch trees also, and. Uh, so there's a variety of birch trees. Of course, you have oaks and um, and the maples. Uh, you mentioned sycamore. Yes, so I a, want to talk about sycamore. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> a native uh, Vermont tree, and that's fairly rare, and they're not that um, easy to plant and grow. I would say that's the the success rates not as good as other trees. Um, Oh, there's another one. There's elms, and then darn, we'll get back to it. Okay, another, another whole category just popped into my well, head. Well, poplars oh. too, right? Are sort of grove trees in a way. Yeah, poplars, and and you can plant little groves of aspen also, which is in the same family. Um, poplars usually aren't a, a tree that people choose, but they're they're a couple of fun things about poplars is they wave in the wind. And oh yeah, the, uh, the 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 leaves wave in the wind, and the reason that they do that is because they can photosynthesize on both sides of their leaves. Huh. They can also photosynthesize on their bark, so their bark is phytoactive. And I I just wanted to say uh, another thing that backed up bark culture and trees is I joke with my clients that if it doesn't have lignin. I don't know about it. So we, uh, arborists deal with woody plants. So herbaceous plants is something I don't have any knowledge of. So if it's smaller than like a, a dogwood or a service berry is also one of my favorite trees. Um, red buds are kind of considered native to Vermont, although I don't really agree with that but i love them and i have a bunch of red buds in my yard because hmm. i just like to i like things that bloom before they leaf out in the spring because i like seeing color as a sign of spring yeah so. so people can reach out to you for a number of things you you do uh uh insect control plant health care uh view creation and maintenance which is that more on on lakesides or rural areas what what does that mean yeah views are a big deal in vermont because you know someone might have a window to see that's another joke i have with clients is we do windows <laughs> so one of my favorite view clearing stories is uh we did a whole day of view clearing for a client so they could see the lake and the adirondacks and uh, and then, coincidentally, I was invited to a party at their house the following weekend, and I heard people at the party all comment about what an incredible view that they had, but no one could tell that we were there. Wow. So we yeah. weren't just hacking trees down or topping trees, but we were selectively cutting off a branch here and a branch there to get just the right windows from where people hang out and look and... We have a Bluetooth communication in our helmets, so that we have a lookout person and a person up in the tree, and they can say, go up five feet, cut that limb off on your left. And so we do a lot of 
view clearing, and that's kind of an art form in itself. Very sophisticated. We're talking with Greg Ronaldo, who's Teachers Tree Service. Uh, hickory. You wanted to, didn't kids just used to get hit with hickory sticks when they're bad? <laughs> in the, uh, at least in the novels. <laughs> yeah, I guess I didn't. Neither did my kids, but uh, I'm sure that's possible. But, uh, I really like hickory trees because you can't buy them. They have a taproot, so that makes them difficult to transplant. And so when I find hickories on someone's property, uh, I really like to find the the young hickory trees and clear the invasive species around them and, and let them grow. And they produce a lot of nuts and great habitat. And the shagbark hickories are bad habitat. And so it's just a really nice tree. Interesting. We are going to go to the phone lines. Uh, Xenia from Barry, welcome to the show. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I'd like to know about locust trees. Um, my neighbor, whose backyard adjoins my backyard uh, here in, in Berrytown, um, uh, she has a gigantic uh, locust tree, and now I have a bunch of locust trees that were propagated. They they dig under the soil, and then they pop up, and they they really are are really go nuts uh, digging under the soil and popping up because I'm continuously finding new ones. Uh, so what can you tell me about locust trees? Uh, yeah, that's a problem that's really hard to stop unless you just mow that area all the time. Uh, and they locust trees discourage other trees and plants from growing around them, and so they do kind of take over territory. I'm assuming these are black locusts. I think that's a safe guess. And uh, they're also really cool trees because they live – can can live hundreds of years, and the wood is more, way more disease. I mean, uh, decay resistant than you know PT or something like that. So pressure treated wood. It's uh, uh, I had a friend with a farm, and he had hundred year old black locust fence posts, and they were still in perfect shape. So, uh, but the root sprouting is uh, really difficult to stop. You really can't so uh, you just got to keep whacking them or have your neighbor cut the tree down yeah. <laughs> uh, Xenia thank you for the call we appreciate that uh, so Greg invasive species it sounds like that's part of the Vermont fabric and even for Xenia it's maybe a, a tree that's supposed to be here but invasive to her yard what about invasive species and replacement for them uh, you know, a lot of times invasive species like the the most pervasive ones are buckthorn and honeysuckle, but also uh, barberry is becoming more and more invasive, and I feel like that's a battle that could be won still, but people need to be aware that if you have barberry in your around your house, it was a popular foundation plant, and now there's uh, parts in the forest, uh, like in Heinsberg, where there's acres of barberry that's chest high and it's impenetrable to walk through and it's very spiky and all those little pretty red berries that are edible for birds and humans um, the birds eat it and then they fly around the woods and plant it so uh, what I do on my property is I pick an area that is maintainable because no matter what you do you got to go back year after year and I find 
I call it treasure hunting. I find like little maple sprouts or dogwood or this or that, and I cut the invasives around those native plants. And, uh, and then I go back and cut the invasive back down again for years. A couple times a summer. It's pretty quick to maintain. And then also, uh, what we do as a company is we'll pick the appropriate native species for the soil conditions and the light conditions, et cetera, that are, uh, great bird habitat and we'll plant those. Um, cause, uh, we gotta help our birds and the primary Food for birds is insects. See, so plant plants that support insects. Hmm. It's, uh, you're dealing with the whole nature cycle here, aren't you? Yeah. yeah so we're going to go back to the phone lines. Greg, you're the popular man of the morning. Uh, Bobby from Randolph, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I was wondering, early, early last winter we had that problem with the beech nuts where we got that heavy frost and it took all the leaves off. Did it do damage to the beech nut trees? Uh, the beech trees have all kinds of issues right now, unfortunately. Um, I don't know that the early frost necessarily hurt the beech trees, though. Um, one little fun fact about beech trees is the reason that they hang on to their leaves all winter is uh, to protect them against pachyderms. So when there were... You know, mastodons roaming North America, the dry leaves would protect the buds in the wintertime from the pachyderms eating the buds. And, and the pachyderms, of course, are gone, but the the trees still hang on to their leaves all winter. So. So, so some listeners know that I climb uh, Elmore Mountain every full moon for the last three years or so. And there are a lot of beach uh, on Elmore, and now I've got to work worry about pachyderms at night yeah. <laughs> yeah you never know there might be one around. yeah and uh and there's a beach bark disease which is actually a combination of diseases that are making uh beech trees decline in vermont and now there's a beech leaf disease moving in uh that are threatening our beech trees and they're uh difficult to deal with so i'm hoping the beech trees develop resistances and and it's a slow process, so there's still a lot of beech trees around, but they're they're one of my favorites. You had mentioned uh, the the ash borer and the and the problem and how prolific that is. And off air, we were talking a little bit how municipalities could be helpful to that process. Yeah, and, and the municipalities in Minnesota, where I'm originally from, I moved here 22 years ago. Um, they negotiate uh, like an injection price for the whole suburb. And so anyone that clicks on, like, let's say I won the bid for that suburb, a resident could go on the, like, South Burlington's website, click on my logo, and then they would get the special negotiated price from a vetted tree care company that's using approved methods. And uh, so they save money for everybody. And also since... Every single ash tree either has to be injected or it's going to fall down in someone's yard. You know, within range of something important, you don't have to go in the woods and cut down ash trees. But uh, they can negotiate uh, citywide removal contracts also so people could get a rate. And it seems like they should leverage that that volume given that it's a certainty. 
the the ash is going to get it you're saying yeah every single ash tree uh so far the the infestation is over 20 years old and it's killed 99.7 percent of all the ash trees in every place that it's infested so it's uh it's a certainty it's because the emerald ash borer is damaged to the trees mechanical like where Dutch elm disease is a fungus, so trees can develop resistances to funguses, and they do all the time. It's something they deal with every day. Um, there's fungi that help trees and hurt trees, but the board does mechanical damage to the cambium, so the ash trees can't defend against that. So we're coming down to about two minutes, Greg. I want to, again, how do they reach you at uh, Teacher's Tree Service? Yeah, the best way to reach us is to go to the website, teacherstreeservice.com, and our phone number's on there. Feel free to call the phone number, and uh, also you can just fill out a contact form with your uh, concern, and we will get the appropriate arborist out to uh, take a look. And you have a big staff, right? Yeah, we're 15 people right now in the company. So we have a fairly good-sized staff. I have a person with a master's degree in forest biology, another person with a master's degree in uh, invasive species removal, and we have several degreed people and quite a few certified arborists. The uh, So it's everything, you, woodland management, view creation and maintenance, plant health care, insect control, uh, yeah. soup to nuts on tree care. Yep. Yep, soup to nuts. Well, Greg, thank you so much for being with me this morning. Uh, we'll get you back. It's an interesting topic. Thank you. That's really fun. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint, here at WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont.